Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our March 2017 issue. This month, we feature several articles from our Focus on Childhood and Adolescent Mental Health special section. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Adding a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, or NRI, could in theory improve residual symptoms of impaired cognition and fatigue. This addition might therefore improve the overall depression outcome in patients with partial response to a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI. In this study sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company, the authors aim to identify a subgroup of patients with major depressive disorder, or MDD, who presented noradrenergic symptoms. These patients would potentially receive additional benefits from either adding a selective NRI to their ongoing treatment with SSRIs or from selective NRI monotherapy. In this case, the selective NRI used was etavoxetine. The authors examined data from four adjunctive treatment trials in which etavoxetine was added to the patient's ongoing treatment with an SSRI and from one etavoxetine monotherapy trial. No subgroup of patients with MDD and noradrenergic symptoms displayed a greater response to adjunctive treatment with etavoxetine compared with the overall MDD patient sample. However, in patients with MDD who had impaired cognition and physical symptoms, etavoxetine monotherapy resulted in greater reduction of the patient's cognitive and physical symptoms. It also resulted in greater improvement in their overall functioning compared to the overall MDD patient sample. The authors conclude that while they could not identify symptoms predictive of response to adjunctive treatment with etavoxetine, impaired cognition and physical symptoms may predict greater improvement during monotherapy. In this meta-analysis on a topic that is currently receiving considerable attention, Corell and colleagues examined the time trends and correlates of antipsychotic use in youth with mood disorders. Two types of studies in youth under 20 years of age were pooled. First, studies reporting on the frequency of mood disorders among antipsychotic treated youth. And second, those reporting on the frequency of antipsychotic use in youth with mood disorders. Altogether, 41 studies, including over 500,000 youth who were 66% male and had an average age of 13 years, were meta-analyzed. Across 34 studies, 24% of antipsychotic-treated youth had a mood disorder, including 14% with bipolar spectrum disorders and 11% with depression spectrum disorders. In longitudinal studies, the overall proportion of mood disorder diagnoses among antipsychotic-treated youth increased significantly from 17% in 2000 to 25% in 2006. Notably, this increase was driven entirely by bipolar spectrum diagnoses that increased from 11% to 16%, whereas the proportion of patients with depression spectrum diagnoses remained stable at around 9%.
In the second set of eight studies reporting on antipsychotic use in mood-disordered youth, antipsychotics were prescribed to 24% of youth with mood disorders. However, antipsychotic prescriptions were about tenfold more common for youth with bipolar spectrum versus depression spectrum disorders being 44% and 5% respectively. Taken together, the findings of this meta-analysis show that the proportion of youth with mood disorders increased significantly among antipsychotic-treated youth. This trend was driven entirely by youth with bipolar spectrum disorders. For patients with bipolar 1 disorder, long-term pharmacologic treatment is required to prevent relapse. However, treatment adherence remains a challenging issue. Long-acting injectable antipsychotics have the potential to improve treatment adherence by simplifying the dosing regimen. In the present study, supported with funding by Otsuk and Lundbeck, researchers conducted a double-blind, randomized withdrawal trial to evaluate the safety and efficacy of aripiprazole once monthly 400 mg as maintenance treatment for bipolar 1 disorder. Patients experiencing a manic, not depressive episode were recruited and stabilized, first on oral aripiprazole and then on aripiprazole once monthly 400. 266 patients were subsequently randomized to receive either aripiprazole once monthly 400 or placebo for up to 52 weeks. Endpoints related to mania were significantly improved for patients receiving aripiprazole versus placebo, including timed recurrence, proportion of patients with recurrence, and the Young Mania Rating Scale score. There were no differences between treatments and endpoints related to depression. The risk of recurrence of any mood episode with aripiprazole once monthly 400 was approximately half that with placebo. The treatment was generally well tolerated. Treatment emergent adverse events with an incidence of over 5% and occurring at higher rates with aripiprazole than placebo were weight increase, akathisia, insomnia, and anxiety. Based on these results, the authors conclude that their findings support the use of aripiprazole once monthly 400 as maintenance treatment for bipolar 1 disorder. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Without a doubt, adolescents often engage in internet use, but at what point does that engagement turn into addiction? And does it have any impact on mental health status? To investigate these questions, researchers from Germany, with funding from the German government, studied both a large community-based sample of adolescents and a clinical sample undergoing counseling for excessive time spent online. Results showed that almost 3% of young people met criteria for internet addiction and showed heightened psychopathological symptoms, such as depression and anxiety. Furthermore, adolescents with internet addiction displayed decreased psychosocial functioning. The study then addressed another question. If the majority of adolescents use the internet, but only a small percentage develop internet addiction, what are the reasons for this mismatch? The researchers suspected that personality could serve as the distinguishing component by acting as either a protective or a risk factor. On the basis of recent findings in personality psychology, the authors considered the developmental aspect of personality and performed analyses according to an age and gender-specific stratification. 
The results confirm their hypothesis. Personality contributes to setting the course for healthy versus unhealthy online behavior. The authors conclude that further research is critical in developing early intervention strategies to prevent internet addiction in adolescents. The menopause transition is characterized by a period of dramatic hormonal fluctuations that lasts many years for most women. These hormonal changes are accompanied by an increased risk for major depressive disorder, or MDD, in addition to the more common menopause symptoms of hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, decreased libido, and sleep disruption. Even women who have never experienced clinical depression are at increased risk of first-episode MDD, referred to as incident menopause depression. As early life stress is a potent risk factor for depression in women across the lifespan, the authors of this month's CME offering sought to determine whether adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, contribute to the increase in depression risk during menopause among those women who had previously been resilient. Their research received funding support from the National Institute of Mental Health. To more fully understand who is at risk for incident menopause depression, the authors examined data from the Penn Ovarian Aging Study. Women in this large longitudinal study were evaluated over a 14-year period for presence of ACEs. The authors found that lifetime risk for depression was significantly increased in women with two or more ACEs compared to women without ACEs. With respect to timing of puberty and ACE onset, women with two or more ACEs after but not before puberty were at greater risk of incident menopause depression. Interestingly, subsequent analyses suggested that having only one ACE before puberty was associated with a decrease in both lifetime and incident menopause depression, even when ACEs were experienced after puberty. These findings suggest that the degree and timing of adversity with respect to puberty contribute to risk and resilience for depression, with the average woman living a third of her life in the perimenopause and postmenopausal state. The authors assert that it is critical for clinicians to consider the potential impact of adverse childhood experiences on women's health during the menopause transition. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Bipolar disorder among adolescents was recently identified as a risk factor for accelerated atherosclerosis and early cardiovascular disease. In this study, researchers from Canada, with funding from the Heart and Soul Foundation in Ontario, examined whether inflammatory markers and brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF, underlie the link between bipolar disorder and vascular risk. 40 adolescents with bipolar disorder and 20 healthy controls between the ages of 13 and 19 years were enrolled in the study. Diagnoses were based on semi-structured interviews. BDNF and inflammatory markers were assayed from serum and vascular structure and function were assessed using validated non-invasive ultrasound techniques. Adolescents with bipolar disorder had significantly greater levels of cardiovascular risk factors and inflammation compared to healthy controls. Inflammation was highest in symptomatic adolescents with bipolar disorder, followed by asymptomatic adolescents with bipolar disorder and healthy controls. 
Among the symptomatic adolescents, lower levels of BDNF were associated with greater carotid intimna media thickness, reflecting greater atherosclerosis risk. Lastly, no significant differences were found in vascular structure or function between adolescents with and without bipolar disorder. This study suggests a potential role of inflammation and BDNF in bridging bipolar disorder and cardiovascular disease. The concept of bipolar disorder as a multi-system disease in which vascular pathology may play a role can potentially be leveraged to yield progress in terms of therapeutics, biomarker discovery, and stigma reduction. Studies that focus on tardive dyskinesia during treatment with second-generation antipsychotics have led to the hope that this side effect would essentially vanish. To explore this issue, Carbon and colleagues conducted a meta-analysis of rates of tardive dyskinesia in various care settings. They collected data on tardive dyskinesia rates during the use of first-generation or second-generation antipsychotics. 41 studies with 11,000 patients, mainly with schizophrenia, were included. The global mean prevalence of tardive dyskinesia was 25% with broad variation among studies. Rates of tardive dyskinesia during treatment with second-generation drugs ranged around 20% and with us significantly lower than rates for first-generation antipsychotics, which were around 30%. Particularly low rates of around 7% were found in the few treatment groups without prior exposure to first-generation antipsychotics. The meta-analysis also confirmed risk factors for tardive dyskinesia, such as higher age, longer illness duration, and Parkinsonism. Nevertheless, these moderators did not interfere with the significance of the higher rates seen with first-generation versus second-generation antipsychotics. The authors point out that the more detailed and prospective studies with repeated measurements of dyskinesia severity are warranted. The long-term impact of experiencing a trauma in childhood, specifically with the resulting onset of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, has been an important clinical and research issue for some time. However, understanding how preschool and young children cope in the face of trauma has been particularly difficult to address because key PTSD symptoms are impossible for parents and caregivers to observe or are extremely difficult for young children to describe. With the development of age-appropriate criteria for diagnosing PTSD in preschool children, it has been possible to derive a much clearer understanding of the impact of trauma on this age group. In the present study, funded by research groups in the United Kingdom, the authors looked at the long-term effects on young children who experienced a motor vehicle collision three years after the collision occurred. By using age-appropriate criteria, the authors found PTSD to be prevalent in over 16% of children, representing a significant minority, and double the rate of results obtained when using standard adult-oriented criteria. Several children who had previously been too young to report their own PTSD symptoms were now able to do so, and they reported symptoms that their parents had not previously been aware of. Moreover, parents consistently underreported PTSD symptoms relative to their children's own self-report. 
Researchers also found that parents own acute post-traumatic stress symptoms and not, as one might expect, the severity of the children's injuries or other aspects of their trauma predicted PTSD in children. The authors conclude that PTSD in children can persist for years, but is underrecognized by parents despite its being shaped to a large extent by parents' own traumatic stress in response to the child's trauma. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. People with Alzheimer's disease commonly use antipsychotics, and they also frequently experience a hip fracture. To study the association between antipsychotic use and hip fracture and Alzheimer's disease, researchers from Finland conducted a cohort study, including 70,000 people who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Their study was sponsored by the Lundbeck Foundation. The authors found that antipsychotic drug use was associated with about a 50% increased risk of hip fracture. The risk was increased from the first days of antipsychotic use and remained increased thereafter. Also examined were the two most commonly used antipsychotic drugs in the study population, prospiridone and quetiapine, which were found to be associated with a similar risk of hip fracture. However, high-dose risperidone compared to low-dose risperidone was associated with a higher risk of fracture. The authors conclude that their study confirms current recommendations that antipsychotic drugs should be used only for the most difficult behavioral symptoms of dementia, such as agitation and aggression, and that the duration of use should be limited. Furthermore, when antipsychotics are needed, the lowest effective doses should be used. Mental health problems, including depression and suicide, are the leading causes of burden in adolescents globally, and public health strategy is required for prevention. Several previous studies have found inconsistent results in the association between lithium level in tap water and mental health problems, but no large-scale individual-level study to address this link has been conducted until now. The authors of this article, supported by Japanese institutions, conducted one such study of data taken from 3,000 students from 24 public junior high schools. In it, they examined the association between lithium and tap water and mental health problems among the general population of adolescents. The data showed an inverse association between lithium level in tap water and depressive symptoms and interpersonal violence in adolescents. These results suggested antidepressive and anti-aggressive effects of lithium in tap water and the potential effects of low-dose lithium therapy on depressive symptoms and aggression in adolescents. The authors conclude that promoting intake of lithium-rich food and water could be a potential public health strategy to prevent mental health problems in adolescents if no adverse effects are observed in future studies. Specific phobia has received little attention in the research literature compared to other anxiety disorders. Often, its clinical relevance is dismissed because it is considered inconsequential and circumscribed to specific objects or situations that can be avoided. However, the research that does exist on specific phobia shows that it can have high comorbidity, a chronic course, and serious impairment in different areas of life. 
In this study funded by the Mexican government, the authors sought to determine the persistence of specific phobia and its predictors in patients from adolescence to young adulthood. Their findings suggest that while the persistence of specific phobia from adolescence to adulthood is low at 17%, clinicians and researchers should be concerned about specific phobia in adolescence for two reasons. First, specific phobia may confer increased risk for developing a substance use and other anxiety disorders in adulthood. And second, onset in adolescence is associated with greater risk of persistence than onset in childhood. These findings are consistent with prior research that shows adolescents to have an attenuated fear extinction response, more so than children and adults. They may therefore benefit less from exposure-based treatment, which is the only evidence-based treatment for specific phobia. The authors conclude that these results have two important implications. Youth with childhood-onset specific phobia should be treated early, before reaching adolescence, and new therapies or therapeutic techniques may need to be developed and evaluated specifically for adolescence. Both prenatal antidepressant exposure and untreated depression during pregnancy have been associated with adverse outcomes. Because randomized controlled trials of antidepressants cannot be done in pregnant women, the available studies are observational, and control groups consist of healthy women, depressed women, and or women who did not receive antidepressants during pregnancy. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade points out that the use of such designs cannot control for confounding arising from poorly measured, unmeasured, or unknown variables that influence the outcomes being assessed. The article discusses problems involved in such research and illustrates how when confounding is diminished by using Sibley controls discordant for antidepressant exposure, the risks of adverse outcomes associated with antidepressant exposure diminish. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this month's ASCP Corner, a regular feature contributed by members of the American Society for Clinical Psychopharmacology, doctors Rubio and Corell discuss the significant problem of untreated psychosis. The authors review the factors that contribute to a longer time to treatment, the impact of untreated psychosis, and emerging strategies for reducing its duration. The full text of this month's ASCP Corner is freely available online. Please visit the March Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the March issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter March into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.